0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Coming up, Annie Smithers gets syrupy, Colin Bissett wanders Tokyo staring at manhole covers, and we reveal why a fake lion head may be the new season must-have for the chic and stylish. This is Blueprint for Living. I'm Jonathan Green with your weekly rummage through places, spaces, food, gardens and design. Your first kitchen rudimental for the new year shortly. Uh, Annie Smithers making the case for sugar. Uh, we'll talk animal heads, chaparelli, and other haute quature runway scene stealers. But first, suburbia. Still fit for purpose or ripe for renovation? The suburb can can seem an idea well, fixed in time. The trim lawns, tidy homes. Homes that these days are uh, bursting to the boundaries of their blocks. It was, of course, a, a revolutionary idea. It's a thing of the the last mid-century, a physical manifestation of, of post-war prosperity and and hope. And that that notion of the suburb, it's a thing embedded in our cultural imaginary, I think. But times change. <laughs> Outer suburban developments these days, they they even incorporate varying densities of living, communal spaces, even terrace houses. But there are some suburbs and developments that time forgot, frozen, a lifestyle beyond its use-by date, and we can see faded symbols of that original period, the dying mall, the abandoned office park. Increasingly, there are efforts to turn these spaces around. Uh, maybe converting that dying mall into a, a living school, something of, of real social utility. My next guests, uh, they are on top of this. They have been documenting this practice for decades. They're professors of architecture. June Williamson uh, at the City College of New York and Ellen Dunham-Jones at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And together, uh, they're authors of Retrofitting Suburbia. Urban design solutions for redesigning suburbia, and they join us from various bits of the US today. June Ellen, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Suburbs, uh, June. To begin with, you. I'm, I'm just thinking about this. I'm reminded of Sunset Boulevard. Norma Desmond. I'm big. The movies got smaller. She protests, but that's that's of course not the truth. What, what what's happened? Around the mid-century suburb, how has the world shifted from that—that that once pervasive reality?
2: Oh, in, in so many many ways, and and yet the stereotype of the mass suburbanization era of uh, the post World War II period, the nineteen fifties, explosion of television, has been so persistent there's been this sort of idea that cities are the places that evolve and change and, and are dynamic and transformative and that somehow suburbs are, are frozen in amber. Uh, but we've seen a, a real historical gaze being put on, on suburbs as they've, they've aged. They're um, senior citizens now, <laughs> these mass suburbs <laughs> of, of that sort of uh, growth period. And so we have the emergence of the study of suburban studies um, that goes along with with urban studies. And what's happened is that the different parts of the suburban landscape, have aged at different rates and in different ways. So you might have residential subdivisions all um, quite, quite happily moving forward, people owning them, although the people living there might have changed, the sizes of the families, uh, all of the demographic changes, but, but the, the commercial parts of those landscapes have fared, in many cases, much more poorly. And you speak about the office parks and the shopping malls, the big box stores, all the, the really car-dependent stuff, which is what we've been fascinated with studying.
1: The interesting thing about that, Ellen, as much as there is that, that change that, that June describes, the notion of the suburb in our, in our imaginary is a pretty static thing. I, I wonder, is that, that, that fixed, imagined suburb, does that, does that slow our, our pace of change, our pace of adaptation? Are we sort of stuck with that thought, and, and, and does that sort of hamper our capacity to, to make things that are newer and better?
3: In many ways, yes, it does. and and even more so, I would say that imagination and that desire for it are our zoning codes and our regulations in the u s where almost eighty percent of urbanized land is zoned to be solely single-family homes. Mm. And yet there's an incredible mismatch between the sizes of households that more than half of the U.S. are one- or two-person households. And they're not all looking for that suburban, freestanding, single-family home, especially as as we age, as June was mentioning. So we're seeing increasingly there's an enormous market that actually kind of grew up in the suburbs, thinks they're boring— wants a more urban lifestyle where they can walk to more places. So increasingly, it's these older commercial properties that become the opportunities for the suburbs to meet the new market and to meet a whole range of challenges that the suburbs were never designed for, whether that's issues of equity, issues of public health, or climate change.
1: But let's go to case studies. And it, it's possible to look at examples that are, are of a big picture, a big sweep. Can you can you talk to that? Perhaps that'll get us a let us get our heads around this idea of retrofitting.
3: Sure. So, in general, what we see is that actually the the residential neighborhoods in suburbs don't tend to change much. But in general, the, the it's it's really the commercial properties where we see most of the retrofitting happening. And sometimes that's just a little bit of infill piece, and or sometimes it's some sort of a more community-serving use moving into a former retail big-box retailer. And in other cases, it might be a 100-acre shopping mall or even a 800-acre office park that is significantly redeveloped. And so These are, they take many forms. We talk about retrofits in terms of three basic strategies. So, in a good, in a strong market where population is growing, redevelopment can make great sense. And it does mean adding more density, making it much more walkable, ideally getting transit much more accessible uh, to people, and having a mix of uses so people really can walk between them. Uh, but we all, there are many many great cases that it makes more sense to simply re inhabit that existing box, whatever size it is, with schools, with medical or healthcare, um, with various kinds of educational uh, at all education uses at all scales, libraries, all kinds of things g- often are going into these uh, boxes. And then the exam- the third strategy, which we love to see, don't see it often enough, but is re-greening because we never should have built there in the first place and it makes more sense to just reconstruct the wetlands and help the rest of the properties survive climate change.
1: Yeah, a tremendous benefit from that. I, I, I was struck in what you said, there, Ellen, the 800-hectare the <laughs> office park. Uh, June, could you, could you tell us, what, what would you do with an 800-hectare? Hectare office park. It seems an imponderably huge thing to retrofit.
2: Well, I will say some of these properties, the size of them is is mind boggling, and you can do exercises with you know uh, uh, Google Maps and and seeing that the entire central business district of of a major city can fit into one of these um, parcels that is some big footprint buildings on it and lots and lots of parking lots. Um, so when you look at it at a hectare to he- hectare, or acre to acre um, comparison, it, it's really quite, quite mind-boggling how much density and diversity and excitement you could get in the same land area in, in a different location. We like to think about it as uh, uh, each retrofit tiny small ones and and these large footprint ones all collectively add up to a process we call incremental metropolitanism. So really it's about everybody within the metropolitan area having interdependencies and and, and finding ways to reimagine the entire metropolitan area uh, to make many centers uh, that uh, don't compete with the central business districts and areas, but are uh, complementary to them
1: it seems the basic lesson that we've learned is that we we don't survive in a in a in a monoculture which is what the early suburbs tended to create
3: absolutely i mean diversity of uses diversity of modes of getting around uh, discern, uh, providing choices for people households of different sizes ages of uh, different people and and having you know reasons and spaces for different people to come together, which is, you know, the suburbs in general have provided a much beloved private realm. Most people really love their homes. They hate their commute, but they love their home. And the public realm in most in the sort of stereotypical kind of suburb is kind of, a you know, a big, wide traffic clogged arterial with a lot of strip malls. And it's not beloved (laughs) and it performs pretty badly on a lot in a lot of ways. So that diversity at every possible scale tends to at least address so many of these challenges. And in particular, I don't know if this, I assume Australia is the same, but I mean, the U.S. is in a loneliness epidemic. Mm. And I, I don't believe that's a coincidence Given you know, suburbanization and, and people spending so all their so much time online, there's a craving for having public gathering spaces where you feel part of a larger community. And we see a lot of these programmed little town greens, but that have constant activities to encourage people to gather, especially in the suburbs. The suburbs generally, most people don't really need access to green space. They need access to other people. To each other. And, <laughs> yeah.
1: And they, of course, need the the, the infrastructure that, that, that makes the culture tick over. June, an interesting example is conversion of, of Kmart stores to schools, which seems to be a thing. How does that work?
2: Well, you've already got the big footprint uh, and the relatively high ceiling. So so these kinds of, of big box stores, you'd have to maybe put some partitions inside, Um um, it could be schools it could be uh, uh pre preschools and, and daycare it even could be a care for older adults um, who maybe need a memory care type type situation and that's being investigated. Uh, and piloted in, in some of these spaces. But you then would create smaller spaces uh, within. It's, it's basically a simple remodeling kind of job. Um, if there weren't already skylights in, in the, the roof of the building, those could be added to bring in more, more natural light. We've also seen examples where the, the big footprint might have a, a courtyard or atrium kind of cut in to bring in more, more light into the space. Um, and also redoing the, the parking lot to bring in more plants and, and better manage the, the stormwater, and, and some of these projects have been just just beautifully executed, uh, and, and that's really wonderful um, to see. And and it's bringing these things sort of already distributing them around where where people um, where people live. So that's a that's a win win uh, in those examples.
1: Well, a huge win, but also, Ellen, an environmental win. I mean, it's important to repurpose structures structures that have is the the jargon will put it embedded carbon uh, rather than knock that over and create something new to to repurpose a building is a very powerful uh, a powerful thing
3: absolutely although it is true that um, buildings from the 1970s and 80s in particular in the US is are probably the buildings that leak the most of any vintage Um, they just were we after that we started requiring better insulation and thermal bridging and all that all, all that those kinds of better practices and and before that we tended to build a little more solidly but so not every building's really quite um worth saving but absolutely there is we thinking about the embedded carbon and trying to really create at the same time, build on those parking lots and or re-green them has an en- enormous environmental effect. And one of the interesting things that we found is that, although I said, you know, the re-greening projects don't have, there aren't, there isn't that much funding for as much re-greening as I think we should be doing. When it happens, what we've seen over and over is that you know, if if we built on top of the wetlands, that was common practice up until the early 70s. Yeah. When we did that, those those pipes are now often failing. And so the parking lots start perking and we get flooding and you know the building dies, and it's a mess. So re- when those have been re-greened and turned into a you know a, a wet reconstructed wetland or a community garden that's allowed to flood. It creates lakefront property that then triggers more redevelopment around the edges.
1: That's a really interesting point because, uh, June, I, I do wonder whether uh, a lot of the problems inherent in suburbs are because of the, the, the commercial necessity of the way that those things were created, were developed. That was the way to make a buck. Uh, do we need to find other ways to um, make those things profitable or to you know, bring in other sources of funding?
2: Uh, no doubt, and and there was a lot of money made um, in commercial development, certainly in in the United States, and I imagine in Australia too, as the the shops and things all followed the the rooftops, as as they say, and that was all um, following actually great public investment in in road infrastructure. Uh, uh, so a lot of profit was made on the back of these public in investments, um, but often the profit was taken after twenty years. So when you develop these complex projects, as, as Ellen just just outlined, we really have a what we might consider resiliency, economic resiliency that could be designed into these places so that they could be sustained over many, many decades. And so instead of having just a big parcel that is all one thing, maybe you pull some roads through it and you break it up into smaller blocks. And then one block could be housing, another block might be Retail that if that doesn't work, it could get turned into office, and so on. So you 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 seed the ground for a more gradual and dynamic set of changes over time, and a, a more capacity to to respond to new needs as as they arise.
1: The other point here, I mean, that the suburb, as we've been describing, and you know, the original notion is a is a very American. Idea It goes hand in hand with that mid-century period and the, the car and the returning GI, all of those things. Is this new thinking about the suburb, is, is that spreading also from America or is this being led by international trends?
3: We certainly hope it's spreading. I mean, I honestly, I, I, it troubles us, I think, somewhat that we see in various parts of the world the growing global middle class really yearns for that model of the the, the sense of having made it is to get the suburban villa. And we keep trying to sort of say to countries where that is happening, no, don't look at yesterday's model, look at today's, (laughs) look at the retrofits of the suburbs, and really the new, much more mixed use, much more walkable, transit oriented, diverse, Kinds of populations of suburbs. That's in fact in the US where we see the most market gains. Uh, There are still places that are based on the old model are still being built further Mm -hmm. and further out on cheaper and cheaper land because we have an affordable housing crisis. But um, we try to encourage as much as we can um, the growing global middle class to really look at the new generation of suburbs and not the old model.
1: A worthy aim, uh, June, Ellen. Thank you so much, and so pertinent <laughs> to this world in which yes, housing is a pressure, and the suburbs continue to grow. We should, we should aim to make them better ones. Thank you.
2: You're welcome. Thank you, You're
1: very welcome. June Williamson and Ellen Dunham Jones, professors of architecture, authors. Now, two books in question here: one, retrofitting suburbia: urban design solutions for redesigning suburbia, and case studies in retrofitting suburbia, both published by Wiley. And this is Blueprint for Living, ABC RN.
4: Join the ABC on a wild odyssey. On planet Earth, life is
2: hard, yet somehow it thrives. Stunning cinematography takes you on a journey across Australia's unique landscapes to uncover the connections that make life on Earth possible. We
1: have to be in awe of what happens
2: in nature. Australia's Wild Odyssey, Tuesday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView.
1: Now, Paris Fashion Week, of course, had all your attention just of late, and you will have seen uh, images of a lion's head, which turns out to be fake, (laughs) and created by the designers at, at the big fashion house, Schiaparelli, and it was fastened by various devices to Kylie Jenner, uh, who was also wearing a black gown, which was kind of the point. Uh, a million TikToks ensued, of course. But this is part of a long history uh, of of things that shock on the high fashion runway, and it's it, it's not only long but a complicated history, a, a tale of technology, even of of pandemics and war. Ricarda Bigelin knows this uh she is associate dean of fashion and textile design at rmit university in melbourne she joins us now Ricarda, hello
0: hi jonathan how are you
1: can we begin with a, a little potted history of of the house what's what's their story
0: the story is really interesting i mean chaparelli is unlike other brands at the moment so chaparelli actually started in the 1920s by elsa chaparelli so one of the um, famous women designers of the time alongside her arch nemesis, which was Coco Chanel. <laughs> um, and at the time, um, it's really important to recognise the, the things that were happening in the world at that time. So Chapelle is really famous for her relationship with art, her work with artists, and particularly the surrealist movement of artists, so people like Man Ray, but also Salvatore Dali, Uh, that really influenced the approach to her work. So this was a time, you know, in between world wars where there was um, a lot of, uh, I guess, ideals and optimism in the world (laughs) and that time is when I think fashion had this uh, playful edge. It's also around how women started dressing very differently at this time. Uh, There was less kind of restrictions on the female body But the surrealist movement really informed how uh, she worked. So she always used very interesting things. She's got a very famous lobster dress, which includes a lobster, (laughs) features on it. Everything was upside down in her world. So you know, a shoe would be a hat. Uh, Also, the use of fur and. uh, hair, other animal hair, was used at that time quite prolifically in fashion. So, you know, the the rise of animal skins in fashion was really happening at that time, Mm. and she used quite unusual things. So there was all these different kind of plays with with objects, um, the body, animals, and I think that that was a particular point in time when that happened in fashion. So that's really founded the house of Maison Schiaparelli. Uh, and also, um, you know, these trompe l'oeil, trick of the eye sort of things were really fa- really familiar to the house as well. But the house kind of um, went, was was kind of in, in the fashion world, there's a term called sleeping beauty brands, which is the houses that, in the nicest possible way, go to sleep,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> which
0: is, this is a term.
1: <laughs> to, to be awakened by the kiss of a
0: prince. Exactly. To be <laughs> awakened by the entrepreneurial nafs of a charming creative director that's going to bring back the house from the dead and obviously restage it. It's a real common practice for French houses, particularly because people see it as buying into the heritage of a brand and an iconography that already exists. So the creative director can just come in, just use the archive go to town and then employ some, you know, 21st century gimmicks to really get the vibe going.
1: Is that what we're seeing here?
0: Totally. Mm. So, So this is definitely, you know, harnessing the power of the media of fashion, harnessing the power of just actually virality and circulation of images. And always throughout this very complicated history of fashion shows, The the core point is these are promotional devices. They're not for entertainment, even though we might think they are. They're actually to generate sales and revenues of the brand. So are they thinking people will go and order a dress with the lion's head on it? No, they're not. But they're thinking, and this is where it's really interesting, they're thinking that actually if so many people see that lion's head dress, this brand hasn't actually been it it was revived, I think, in 2014. It hadn't been around, so most people actually don't know this house, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like Dior; that's kind of ha- it, it's maintained itself over the you know over the century. So this does everything it needs to do because it gets brand awareness going, and the average consumer or that middle market consumer might be able to go and buy the chaparelli perfume as a response when yes. they're browsing. Oh wow! That's the same brand as that Lion's Head I know
1: that name. <laughs> but isn't, isn't the interesting thing, though, and, and why this is such mm-hmm. a beautiful example of this is because the it's so true to that original, you know, surrealist idea.
0: It is, yeah. And I think that, that, as I located before, it was happening into war time as well. And interesting things happened between these key global movements in fashion where suddenly people get. You know, we've gone through COVID, but suddenly people are thinking, wow, fashion's just fantastic again. Let's just enjoy the spectacle. <laughs> and I think that really happens. Yes. Um, that's that's a move that a lot of these big brands use, I think, to kind of that utopian world, dreams, this sort of unattainable, seductive world that we see.
1: Lots of echoes.
0: Totally, <laughs> yeah. totally. But, but its main goal is to is to generate revenue and to build that brand. And I have no doubt that it's doing that.
1: But it's interesting, too, because we're talking here about animal heads, and of course, they, they were not real. But it feeds into another conversation and that one around the use of animal products. Um, And and other brands are sort of being consciously nothing to do with animals,
5: Mm.
1: but here's Schiaparelli making quite a powerful statement. Um, It it doesn't imply that they want to use animals for anything else than shock value, but even so.
0: The thing about that I haven't mentioned before about Chaparelli, she was famous for shock value. So she actually invented a colour and trademarked it that was called shocking pink. <laughs> it was also part of this was shock. So even at that time when she was doing it, it was shock. Oh, wow, a woman's got a shoe on her head or that dress is like a lobster or there's a skeleton on the back of that dress. So it was shock value of the time as well. So I think that that's, that's part of it and it's sort of that, you know, showing difference within those luxury brands um, and those luxury kind of couture brands, you know, the industry itself with where real fur or animal hides, the the widespread, you know, cruelty and animal rights issues with mm. that are really understood now. So I think that it was shocking in that respect because, you know, in the last five years there's been a real turn in fashion kind of becoming more ethical across Human labour rights, animal rights, and obviously environmental ethics.. Yep, yep. So I think the response has been part of that, but the other part of it is also you know the 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 relationship with the use of animals and animal pelts with indigenous and First Nation peoples, like these are traditional practices that have been used all around the world. By Indigenous and First Nations or First Landowners, and I think that that also is is the potential problem with it as well, because mm. there's a, a a real understanding worldwide of the issues that these were very kind of sustainable and considered material practices that were traditional knowledges that then were exploited with colonization and turned into massive revenues. So I think <laughs> that that there's many kind of tenants to the issues with it. Um, it does relate to the background of the house. So, I mean, their argument will be around that. Of that course,
1: the, but it's it's a minefield, isn't it, that they're stepping it into?
0: Is. <laughs> it is, but it generates a lot of, like, discussion. The, well,
1: so, the, as you say, that, that's, the, that's the intent. It's to, to totally. create, create that attention. Of yeah. course, and, and that is a thing which which stretches back uh, over time. I mean, Chad, give us some of your favourites in, in the history of, of runway gimmicks. What stands out for you?
0: I think for me, like, because it's, the gimmicks is kind of divided over different areas of the fashion show itself. So from, you know, the various spectacles of the runway itself. So there's obviously, first and foremost, creating amazing pieces that just look extravagant and incredible. So that that's always been a part of this practice of the runways. But then all of these other elements are things that have been kind of played with from scenography to choreography of models, theatrics, locations, all of that. So I think that that has been the way that it's really been explored. And all of this has been to, you know, since that point in the mid-20th century where the industry started to grow fundamentally at that point, mm. um, Became more than just haute couture for people—a select few that could buy it. It was really the the big kind of mass circulation of ready-to-wear or off-the-rack garments. So, the, the storytelling really exploded from that point, and people started to do a lot more theatrical things. Really, at that mid-century point. Um, I always do think of um, this film by William Klein, which is called Who Are You, Polly Magoo, where it (laughs) does a parody of a couture presentation in the opening scenes. I highly recommend it. It's the most amazing uh, scene I've seen in a long time. Um, It was a film from 1966, but this very strange show is set in a monastic-looking modern-day church Important editors sit in the front row and they witness this presentation of models wearing huge stainless steel dresses and they can't really walk and they're they <laughs> kind of in pain. There's very operatic climactic music um, and then it kind of cuts. So it's it really is that kind of play on the role of the catwalk to just communicate this, this image and this representation and then the actual product itself, the differences between the two. Um, And the shifts have been so broad, I think, like Hmm. from um, just and that relationship with technology. So if we're talking also, you know, some of the recent things, so we're seeing really, you know, from women's rights to diversity inclusion or diversity gender of, of genders and sexualities presented to the reflection of diverse cultures, Black Lives matters. all of that also reflected onto the shows. Um, I know the Rick Owens uh, Human Backpack in 2015 is, is, a, is, a, is, is one of those ones Just that... Just
1: describe uh, that for people who are not familiar with it.
0: People who have not seen that, that actually involved um, dancers carrying each other in the form of a backpack. So one person was a backpack to the other body. Um, And this was like a collaboration (laughs) with dancers, um, which fashion, a lot of uh, lots and lots of fashion designers have. So there are so many other shows also where it's presented as all ballet dancers. So as I was saying earlier, like all of the elements of the fashion show are sort of tropes that always designers play with to generate hype. It's Mm. not all just the clothes. So this was kind of, you know, really parodying around the the body, like the human body, the power of the body, the sort of really thinking of also like the standards of the body because there are great differences in, you know, this very standardised model-like impossible figure and actually the body of real dancers
1: that that sort of that sort of shock treatment though i mean even the runway itself if we go back to the earliest early, th- early mm. 20th century that in itself is an innovation to sort of capture attention
0: totally so and it's pure you know it's pure origins um, were to promote sales. So the earliest runways happened in around 1910 in Paris in the showrooms of of Parisian couturiers. Um, One in particular was the House of Worth and they really just involved a very simple Parade of what they called mannequins. So they would often, in a very kind of salon atmosphere, parade the new styles in a very kind of casual way. They would often involve someone as a narrator talking about. Now we'll see Madame wearing this style and this style, and it was just for generating um, revenue and sales. It was. It had a very similar to that intimate
1: setting. The people in the room would yeah then then buy the dress.
0: Exactly. So it was very different to now. And, and, you know, we can obviously glance back at that. And we, we don't rely on that intimacy anymore, because we have, you know, the web. Well, I, was, I was
1: going to say that that's the new challenge, isn't it? And, and I guess the new incentive uh, to be extreme is to to get that prominence in social media, to get yourself all over TikTok. That's, that's the modern game
0: it really is and it's it's the it's that jet, that kind of virality across those things and how you know the internet really changed these shows mm. so it mm. changed these shows from really basic elements um in 1980s 1990s the shows always were really kind of down one long narrow runway. They were often down this long narrow runway, this elevated platform. And there was a lot of posing and standing at the end, <laughs> and theatrics and waving to the crowd. But now it's if most runways are really kind of non stop walking and like the fleet of models coming through because. That really helps with the live feed when all of the people in the front row can just quickly stream this and it's just so fast.
1: It should not yeah. surprise us, Ricardo, that the world of fashion is uh, a leader in these trends. and, and I, I for one, am disappointed that my my tram won't be full of people in weeks to come wearing fake lion heads, but there we are. I
0: know. <laughs> life
1: is full of disappointments.
0: Yeah, I know. It's, it would be, it would make life really entertaining. <laughs> <Yes. laughs>
1: Ricardo thank you.
0: No worries. It's been great to talk to you, Jonathan.
1: Ricardo Begelin, uh, Associate Dean of Fashion and Textile Design at RMIT University. It's a Blueprint, ABC RN. Kitchen Rudimental, a series in which chef and author Annie Smithers investigates the very basics of kitchen craft. It's a new year with Annie Smithers.
4: It's a new year and the sun is shining.
1: Well, it's that time of year.
4: Yeah, but on the back of three years of La Nina, mm. yeah, a bit of sunshine is incredibly welcome for me.
1: Well, hello! Hello!
4: Happy New Year! Here we are.
1: I'm thinking that the garden must—the garden must be loving it.
4: The garden is loving it. It has dried out quite quickly. Quite a—quite amazing how quickly it dries out from the wettest year on record. But um, the amount of growth is beautiful. It's very lovely to be entering into that world of tomatoes and cucumbers and zucchinis, and the fruit's amazing. And it's—it's. It's beautiful lettuces, everything's very happy and lovely.
1: All of which we will talk about and on as we move. This is our fourth year.
4: From March the 8th or something, we will be entering our fourth year of this.
1: And we will we will move again through the, the glorious seasons and, and their produce and the food that and come the
4: of it. And the principles that you can apply to all of those things in your home kitchen.
1: Today, however... It, it is an unsee. Well, it, it is you you're gonna, you to gonna do something seasonal with it, uh, but the the basic thing is is a, is a constant.
4: I I wanted to talk about sugar. Very non PC these days because there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people who are choosing not to eat as much sugar or no sugar. Um, and look, on a health benefit thing, there is a lot of benefits of reducing the amount of sugar. But I can't quite remove all of it from my diet.
1: I think the tricky thing I mean, is is the way in which it's hidden in so much that we eat. That's especially. I mean, this is one of the objections around processed food, isn't it? That it contains stuff. Processed,
4: processed food contains enormous amounts of salt and sugar, and those those ingredients are often um, listed, but under names that we don't recognise. So mm. it is a it's a tricky one, and I think that yeah, one of the core objectives that we started with in 2019 was to talk about food that you cook at home. And one of the things about cooking food at home is that you know all the ingredients that you're putting in your, you know, dinner or your biscuits or your whatever. Um, which means that there's no hidden nasties Mm. and you can make a choice to say, well, I'm going to make this and it's a bit of a luxe item because it's got more sugar than I would usually like to have, but I'm going to do this because the fruit is fantastic and it's the right season for it and I just want to make something beautiful and have a treat. Whereas going and purchasing something, you know, same, same but different could have all sorts of nasty things in it, that you don't want to put in your body as well as a lot of sugars that may be even more refined than the ones you're eating.
1: Plus there's that that element of treat, you know, making something special. is Making
4: something really special. So sugar syrup is one of those things that we make in a kitchen that we use for a lot of things. So a standard sugar syrup is one-to-one water-to-sugar. So a kilo of water, a kilo of sugar to a litre of water, and kitchens will often have sugar syrup in them because the bar likes to make cocktails out of them. <laughs> you know, so the waiters come and steal your sugar, um, your sugar syrup, um, or they call it stock syrup. Uh, but there's a lot of painting of syrups in pastry work. So if you make, say, a Genoise sponge or something that has yes layered sponge cake or layered sponge biscuits or whatever in it you will often dunk them or brush them with a sugar syrup so think um think tiramisu you know you have a sugar syrup that has coffee in it and you soak the savoiardi in it and yeah you know, that is part of the process of sort of making you know, adding sweetness to the dish but also using the sugar syrup to carry a flavor through other things mm. So, you know, baklava gets sugar syrup poured over it, rum barbers get soaked in sugar syrup. You know, it is, a, it is something that is everywhere in our lives in a kitchen and it, it moistens things and it makes things sort of delicious. And, it, you know, it, it, I think it has a beautiful purpose and role in the fundamental and rudimental parts of a lot of dessert cookery.
1: It is a, it, it's an interesting thing to bracket with salt, as you did. Yeah. Because that, that sort of sense of, of utility and that sense of enhancement, that yeah. sense of sort of almost indescribable increase in the body of something, both of them do it.
4: Yeah, and salt salt has that magic ability to bring out flavour. And sugar also has that too. So if you think, if you buy a... I don't know, a fairly ordinary... Well, you buy a punnet of strawberries and you open them up and you're full of expectation and joy (laughs) about these lovely-looking strawberries that you've bought and you take a bite out of one. It's a bit flat and it's a bit lacking. If you dust it in icing sugar and let it macerate in that for a minute or two, that strawberry flavour will be enhanced by the you know, by the addition of a bit of sugar. So what's happened is that perhaps that strawberry has not seen quite enough sun or it's been picked a tiny bit early or, you know, there's been some reason why it's not as sweet as it should be. And it instantly corrects itself with that little addition of sugar. So it brings out a lot more of the flavour, which I think is very clever.
1: That word macerate, just explain that.
4: Well, when you... Dust or put, put fruit, particularly soft fruit or cut fruit in sugar, is the sugar immediately starts in the same way the salt does, to draw out some of the liquid. So then the sugar dissolves in the liquid the water that's coming out of the fruit and creates its own little flavoured sugar syrup to embalm that little piece of fruit in, so that it's much more delicious.
1: You can add that on your menu, embalmed
4: fruits. Embalmed strawberries. <laughs> Sounds like something out of a Heston film, doesn't it?
1: Ooh. Okay, so we have, we have syrup.
4: So we have sugar syrup. Now, sugar syrup then goes... So we use it in things like, you know, brushing cakes and making, making tiramisu and all those sort of things. Sugar syrup uh, that is flavoured with fruit is often turned into that wonderful thing called jelly. <laughs> Do you like jelly?
1: I mean, look um, as you know, a person of my age and, and place of birth, I grew up with aeropane jelly, for yes. example. You know, I like aeropane jelly.
4: <laughs> um, I look I love jelly. I think jelly's jelly is jelly is a fascination to me because of its wobble. <laughs> you know, and there are there are practitioners out there that make an absolute art of jelly making and all those amazing Victorian jelly moulds. Yeah, it's just a I don't know, they're just this spectacular. It thing. Is, it's spectacular
1: though. Yeah, when shape. it's done
4: right, mm. it is this amazing architectural but wobbly it, it just defies Everything. Well,
1: we're going to make jelly.
4: No, we're not going to make jelly. Oh. We're not going to make jelly. I mean, we can make jelly another day. Um, but jellies are quite simple to make if you're happy to eat gelatin. So, of course, our vegetarian friends don't eat gelatin because of it's an animal product. But they do get to make jellies and things with agar, agar, which is the sort of sea version of uh, gelatin. Um, but... Adding, if you, for example, have poached some peaches, so yeah, if I if I have a glut of beautiful white peaches, and I want to do things with them, I will go through a process where I will make dif- different things with the process of using these peaches. So I will make a sugar syrup of one to one. I will then pop my peaches and I'd like them to be nice and ripe so I'll pop them in the sugar syrup and I'll let them simmer in there for a few minutes depending on their ripeness I'll slip them out and I'll slip the skins off them because the white peaches the skins come off very easily a lot of the yellow ones do but when you get to the cling stones that's a whole nother box they can be tricky
1: and he's not looking very pleased at the thought of clingstone peaches. <laughs> oh, the
4: clingstone peaches, and their and they clingy skin. It's not, you now it's not a, it's not a cardy that's easily slipped off on the clingstones. But so I will, put, and then what I will do with that is I will have a, a bucket of pink liquid, pink sweet liquid, which is pink sugar syrup.
1: What's the? Where's the pink from? The
4: pink's from the colour of the skins on the peaches. So not only is it pink, but it's lightly peach scented. Mm-hmm. I'll have my poached fruit that now has its skins off and its stones taken out. And what I will do with that is I will puree some of those peach. I will puree those peaches and I will add one, two parts of that to one part of the initial sugar syrup and a little bit of lemon juice. And I will make peach sorbet.
1: Yum. Yeah. Immediately. Immediately.
4: Yeah. (laughs) And then if I'm feeling really naughty and having a little jelly moment is I will also take some of that pink sugar syrup that is lightly and mildly peach flavoured and I will add some, I will heat a little bit of it and I will soak my gelatin leaves and I will add my add the appropriate amount of uh, sugar syrup and melt the gelatin in it Mm. and then i will add as it cools i'll add some sparkling wine to it and then as it sets it holds it like magic it holds the bubble from the sparkling wine so you have the sweetness of it's like a That must it's be like, a real trick like, of
1: timing though. It's
4: like a Bellini. It's like Bellini. Okay,
1: jelly. nice. Yeah. That's
4: good. So it has this little, you can feel yeah. the bubble just. But yeah, it is a bit of a trick of timing. It's a fine up. But the acidity of a, of a sparkling wine with the sweetness of the peach is a really beautiful combination when it comes to a grown up jelly. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So there you go. It's
1: better than the aeroplane port wine.
4: I do you like a bit of aeroplane port wine. I jelly, think we though? all do. Yes. I know, I know. I have met a few people who have failed making jelly, though, from aeroplane jelly. That is a thing. Some well, people I'm can't I'm trying
1: really. to get my head around yeah, that. Yeah, try and
4: get your head around that. <laughs> I won't mention that was my vegan wife. Oh, did I just mention that?
1: All right, so all right. What, what are we doing here? We're, we're, we're sorbeting.
4: So... I think next time that we come along, mm. we will make some strawberry sorbet. How do you feel about that? I think
1: that's an excellent suggestion. Right, Fine but we idea. Do, we do
4: need to talk I think it'll about... Are they going to be your strawberries? They will be my strawberries. Mm. Um, what
1: sort are you growing?
4: Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that we're growing... I know that we're growing Cambridge Rival, and I know that this year we've grown some amazing little white strawberries... But there is a strawberry plant that comes from way back in the Malmesbury days that one of my friends slash gardeners planted for me. And I never recorded the name. And it's a big, you know, fully fleshed, lovely Japanese style strawberry um, that has, you know, like many berries has a different persona in autumn as it does in summer. But I never knew the name. But I've just taken the runners year in year out, so it just perpetuates in my garden. Should give it a name. Oh, we could call it the J, the JG Strawberry. Well, no, it sounds like
1: a, the Malmesbury mascot. Or... Oh,
4: no, I think the Jonathan Green Strawberry is much better. All
1: right. Well, that's next next time. Yeah. Strawberry sorbet with. Mansory mascot or whatever they might be. Addie, <laughs> uh, thank you.
4: It's my pleasure. It's lovely to be back. Thank you.
1: Here we go. Get rudimental in your kitchen with your sugar syrup. Colin, look up! You'll fall over. Colin Bessett with a downward-looking icon.
5: While many visitors to Japan might get a crick in their neck, gazing up at towering pagodas and torii gates, there's one item that is much more down-to-earth, but equally unmissable. Manhole covers, or manhorukaba. Not all of them, but there are certainly hundreds throughout the land, which are as beautiful as porcelain plates. These simple circles of iron are often enamelled in bright colours and cast in a wide variety of designs that resemble Japanese woodcuts, portraying images of everything from local landmarks to popular comic figures. Finding one embedded in the footpath is like discovering a jewel and can become addictive. They are quite simply tiny treasures waiting to be found. Decorating manhole covers so deliciously was the idea of a civil servant called Yatsutaki Kamida in the 1980s. He thought artfully decorated manhole covers would alert people to the wonder of the drainage system that lay below their feet. It was a sort of mindful action, drawing a daily consciousness to a whole world of subterranean pipework. He figured their popularity would also create an impetus for rural communities to invest in new sewer systems. It's a typically Japanese solution to a problem, bringing beauty and focus to something that is ordinary in the extreme. And yet it also tapped into an older way of thinking, to a time when sewer systems first revolutionised urban living in the 19th century. You need only visit one of the great pumping stations of Victorian London to appreciate the beauty of the new sewerage system that Joseph Bazalgette engineered for the city in the 1860s, with a network of nearly 2,000 kilometres of sewers, some of them hidden in a new embankment alongside the Thames. The buildings are splendid Romanesque fantasies that elevate the banal into something almost hallowed, Inside, the pumps and pipes that power the system are a symphony of polished and enamelled iron and brass. These are temples to the glory of sophisticated living, where the retrieving and relieving of the city's waste is given an importance we often overlook, until it fails. It's no wonder that guided tours of the sewer systems of great cities around the world have become major attractions. In Japan, the craze for manhole covers is mirrored by the country's celebration of other everyday essentials, like the golden domes atop Osaka's waste plant, decorated by Viennese artist Hundertwasser, or the astonishing crispness of Hiroshima's, as clinical as a laboratory, with both designed in the early years of this century. Perhaps we should always promote these mundane services, We think nothing of creating a beautiful bridge, but seldom accord the same dignity to service buildings that do more basic things. Although, when Walter Burley Griffin designed waste incinerators for Sydney and elsewhere in the 1920s, they showed a pride that surpassed their basic utility. Today, we can spend more on a new bathroom than we might on any other room, which surely demonstrates an acceptance of our body's most basic needs. Japanese culture has always focused on the micro, including complicated toilet seats that perform all manner of intimacies. As one walks the long straight streets of Japan's modern towns and cities, The manhole covers shine like sunbeams of art and engineering, reminders that greatness often lies in hidden things.
1: Colin, thank you. Uh, All Colin's icons gathered for you at the ABC Listen app, or of course the blueprint page of the Radio National website, which is where you can chat to us. There's a little button there, you can press and send us a little note. It can be it can be praise, it can be anything but praise. We don't mind, just have a talk to us. Uh, we'll be back to chat with you same time next time. I'm Jonathan Green.